there are a lot of good tax preparers out there, a lot of good accountants out there, but you need to find someone who specializes in real estate because otherwise you're going to miss a lot of opportunities. A good tax preparer or accountant that specializes in real estate is going to be proactive in helping to ask you the questions that you didn't even think about and setting up a strategy for the upcoming year for you and your business. Welcome to the Property Management Brainstorm Show with Bob Preston. Bob is the CEO, owner, and broker of North County Property Group, the fastest growing and top-ranked property management company in San Diego County, California. This podcast is for property managers and real estate investors who want to stay on top of leading trends in managing their property assets. You'll hear from leading professionals on the best practices for growing your property management business, successfully renting your properties, and how to make sure your properties are managed correctly. Now, here is your host, Bob Preston. Hello, brainstormers. This is Bob Preston, RMP, MPM, Regional Vice President for the NARPM Southwestern Region, and your podcast host. Welcome to the show. I'm broadcasting from our studio here at North County Property Group in Del Mar, California. If you're new here, please consider subscribing so you get all of our ongoing episodes. And if you like what you hear, please pay it forward with a positive review. As a property manager or a real estate investor, I'm sure you would all agree that it's imperative that we have great representation regarding tax considerations, not only for running our own businesses, but also to provide the best possible advice for our investment property clients. The key is planning to successfully and legally reduce tax liability in order to maximize after-tax income. I'm joined on the show today by Richard Hart of Hart & Associates a tax consulting firm who has been providing guidance and services to property managers and investors for nearly 20 years. He's also a NARPM affiliate for those of us who are members of the National Association of Residential Property Managers. Richard and I plan to explore some tax-related considerations, answer some really good questions that I'm sure we're all wondering about that all property managers and investors will want to hear. Hey, Richard, thanks for joining me today. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I always like to start our show by having my guests introduce themselves. Tell us a little bit about your company. And so, Richard, why don't you kick us off with that today? Okay. Well, my name is Richard Hart. I'm president of Hart & Associates. You can say we're a boutique tax accounting firm, and we specialize in real estate taxation. Mm -hmm. So we service the property management, real estate brokerages, property investors, whether domestic or international, throughout the entire United States. Been doing tax accounting for over 20 years, but specializing in real estate tax accounting for the past 13 years. Basically, we try to keep as much money in your pocket as possible, because the IRS says hey, you can take as many deductions as you want, as long as they're legal. And that's what we try to do. Perfect. I know <laughs> as a property management company and an investor, that's always hugely important to me. And the, you know, I'm in the state of California, our tax codes for both the IRS and state codes, right? Hugely complex. And, you know, I think that's why as property managers or investors, we need to be in line with someone like you, right? So what I'd like to do today, if it's okay with you, is we're going to discuss several areas related to common questions and concerns that I hear from fellow property managers and from my investor clients. And I know it's going to be tempting to do a super deep dive, right? Because each one could be discussed, I mean, you know, in, in length, but we're not going to be able to do that today, but do just a summary of each of these questions and topics. And then maybe on a future episode, we can have you back. Does that sound good? 
That sounds good. We're here to keep people up. I don't want people to fall asleep uh, while they drive and listen to tax. <laughs> yeah. So, well, it's also going to be kind of a rapid fire, you know, a question and answer. So I think this is going to be good. But as a tax advisor and preparer, I mean, you specialize in real estate, property managers, investors. What would you say is the most common mistake or maybe a misconception that you encounter when working with these types of companies, you know, property managers, investors, or real estate? The most common mistake is people tend to be reactionary as opposed to being proactive. What I mean by that is they wait until they're ready to file their taxes and then they realize all the the things, the options that they could have had during the the prior year. So reactionary, they find out they owe X amount of dollars and now they're in a panic or they need to hit the bar. That's reactionary. Proactive is you make a plan for the upcoming year to align with your goals so that you can take advantage of a lot of uh, tax deductions that are available to you. And also so that you know exactly, okay, I'm going to owe X amount of dollars during tax time. Sure. Because that's another problem is by the time it's tax time, all the money's been spent and now you don't have the money to pay the taxes. And now you're behind the eight ball and it's extremely hard to get get ahead of that once you get into that position. So I would say that's the biggest problem that people are uh, reactionary as opposed to being proactive. And a part of that too is tax preparers and tax accountants. It's a wide field. So what do I mean by that? If you go to the doctor and you have a heart problem, you're not going to go to a podiatrist, right? They're both good, yeah. good good, doctors, maybe the best in the field, but you're going to go to the one who specializes in your issue. Likewise with the accounting and tax preparers. There are a lot of good tax preparers out there, a lot of good accountants out there, but you need to find someone who specializes in real estate because otherwise you're going to miss a lot of opportunities. And again, a good tax preparer or accountant that specializes in real estate is going to be proactive and help, helping to ask you the questions that you didn't even think about and setting up a strategy for the upcoming year for you know for you and your business. Sure. At what point then in the year do you recommend property managers or investors do that? Like do you typically start that in January of the previous year? So you sort of or, or the tax year. So at what point I guess is it too late to really have an impact? It's too late to have an impact in fourth quarter. So in other words, October, November, December, you're, you're going to be limited as far as what you can do. Usually, like for myself, I like to strategize with my clients uh, when I'm completing their tax return for the year, because then I understand exactly what's happened in the prior year. And then I can start walking them through what they need to do for you know, current year. For example, 2021, let's say you prepare your taxes in April, then I'll give you a guidebook for the, the rest of the year. Gotcha. Most tax preparers, January through April, it's going to be, that's the busiest time of the year. So you're probably not going to get too much strategy for the upcoming year, but you should be able to talk to your accountant from minimum starting in, in May to figure out what your plan is for the year. Sure. Yeah. And then I suppose if you work with somebody on a long-term basis, then you already know a little bit about the strategy and the planning and it's more fine tuning, right? Than starting from scratch, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, that's exactly. Okay. Let's talk about company structure as it's related to taxation. All of us in property management want our liability to be limited typically. So likely we have some sort of corporation in place, whether it's an LLC, an S corp, a C corp, from a tax perspective, what are the differences of each of these kind of entities and which corporate structure do you find is the most favorable for property management companies? From a legal perspective, an LLC is probably your best structure. The reason I say that is because it's very simple to operate. 
very low administrative costs with with uh, the state. If you're a corporation, you have to really follow a lot of corporate formalities to keep yourself uh, legal. An LLC doesn't have all that. Board minutes. Yes. All right. And also um, a corporation is taxed higher. Mm-hmm. And especially in California, you got more taxes on top of a corporation. So legally speaking, though, an LLC has all the protections that a corporation has. It's just easier to operate. Now, there's a difference between an S corporation and a C corporation. A C corporation, very rarely would a property manager want to use a C corporation. You're going to take your public company public or have lots of shares and have lots of investors. That's what a C corporation generally is mainly used. Property managers, if they do have a corporation or elect to be taxed as a corporation, will want an S corporation. The difference with an S corporation is the S corporation itself doesn't pay tax everything flows through to the individual owner's personal tax returns and you get taxed at your personal rate. Right. Historically, a C corporation doesn't have the tax credits that a, your personal return would have. Historically, a C corporation is also taxed at a higher rate than your personal rate. Double taxation, if you will, right? Yep. But if you are wealthy, the upper tax bracket, so let's say you're in the 35% tax bracket as a on your personal return, that's the only time it would kind of make sense to use a C corporation because then you can keep most of the profits in the C corporation getting taxed at a lower rate uh, as opposed to pulling everything into your personal return getting taxed at a higher rate. But we're at a period of time where we know corporate taxes have got to go up because you know yeah. the government's got to pay for the pay for stuff. So eventually the corporates are going to have to go up. So you know it all depends on strategy where you are as a company what your goals are down the future, uh, that all comes into play uh, as far as what structure you're going to use. But structure set up at the very, very beginning is very important because once you set up a structure, it's very difficult to make changes after the fact. Yeah. A lot of people who listen to the show are new property managers who are just starting out. So I think it'd be a a very interesting uh, conversation or, you know, very interesting topic for them. You know, 18 months ago when the COVID-19 pandemic erupted, (laughs) right? many of us in the property management business were kind of freaking out. We had a lot of uncertainty on the ability just to collect rent, right? right? So that got a lot of us worried about the the future of our companies. There were a lot of doom and gloom projections that, oh, people aren't going to be able to pay. And, you know, many of us then, of course, obtained the payroll protection plan loans, which have since been forgiven and have converted to a grant. I think that's how it works. So I get a lot of questions from other property managers about where that money should go on the PL, right? It converts from a loan to a grant. I think that's how it works. And then how is that money taxed? Can you give us some insight on that? Yeah. So PPP uh, loans, if they're forgiven, they should appear on your profit and loss as other income. Mm-hmm. It should be a separate line item at the end of the, the PL, other income. That's where it should go. The reason being is your tax preparer will now be able to see this lump sum amount and segregate it out and say, okay, this let's say $50,000 is PPP loan that's been forgiven. Now on the tax return, they won't include that as taxable income because it's tax-free. But on your P&L, you want to show it as coming in as income. The only caveat to that is the majority of states follow the federal guidelines and will say PPP loans are not taxable. There's only a handful of states that have their own laws where they will tax PPP money. California happens to be one of those states. So there's another step. If you have PPP forgiven in California, you have to take your financials from 2019 and compare each quarter to 2020. 
as long as in 2020, one of those quarters, you received a 25% reduction in gross receipts compared to 2019, then California will allow you to be forgiven of that PPP amount. But if you've made more money in 2020 than you did in 2019, then you have to pay tax to California, that PPP money. That makes sense. I mean, they're kind of verifying that, okay, you needed this money to survive versus, okay, you got the money, but you actually did pretty well, right? Right. (laughs) There are two different scenarios. Okay, perfect. What about the S-Corps? I think, you know, a lot of us are S-Corps that issue a K-1 to the owners. Is that PPP then reflected as income on the K-1 for the owner? Or again, is it not considered taxable income? It's not considered taxable income. So it won't show up on the tax return, which should reflect, in effect, won't show up on the K-1. Mm-hmm. However, again, if it's uh, for your California K-1s, it will be on there if it is taxable to California. So short answer is, if it's not taxable, it's not going to show up on your K-1s. It's not going to show up on your personal return. You don't have to worry about it. If it is taxable, it will only show up on your state tax return. Gotcha. Wow. Super helpful. Most of us familiar with the common rule of thumb of keeping our personal tax returns for three years, right? That's kind of the rule of thumb for us as individuals. Does that same rule of thumb apply to property management company for tax returns and and keeping the records? And is it ever necessary to hold accounting and tax records longer? So for businesses, businesses generally have to hold returns for seven years because the IRS has a look back period of seven years for, for companies. And to answer your question, as far as holding them longer, it depends what's on your return for that year. So for example, if you purchased a property in, I don't know, 2000, you're selling it in 2021, you want to make sure you hold all the records from the purchase of that property in 2000. Because now with your 2021 tax return, if you get audited, the IRS is going to want you to prove your basis in that property. So any any records that can prove your purchase price, your capital improvements, et cetera, on that 2021 return would have to be kept. So short answer is, as long as you're not selling anything, that you have to prove basis, then you really keep records for personal for three years, businesses for seven years. If on your current return, you, you're selling an asset, you have to prove what you're putting down on that tax return. So you have to be able to prove your purchase price, capital improvements, anything that's going to increase the basis of that asset so that the IRS knows how you're com- computing your capital gain. Sure. I'm guessing that's kind of tough for some for some people to you know have records retained for that period of time. I know in today's day and age, we have cloud storage. In 2000, we probably didn't. Right. You know? So some of the receipts from home improvements and things like that might no longer be laying around. But that's one way is just to make sure that obviously anything related to your company gets stored in the cloud, right? And then it's kind of there for perpetuity. Right. You don't have to worry about like stacks of paper, um, you know, taking up taking up storage space. Okay, We came to you recently, uh, my company, North County Property Group, with a scenario in which we had a foreign investor. I'm sure you remember this, right? Yes. (laughs) Who hired us to manage an investment property. And as we got into it and we reached the agreement, we realized that he didn't have a tax identification number. He was from a foreign country. But we had already started to collect the rent. We had rented it successfully. Uh, We wanted to keep him as a client. But this ITIN, as is known, kind of became an issue. So give us a lowdown on this. Where are property managers needing to be cautious? And what are the proper steps that they can follow to make sure they're in compliance with state and federal law when it comes to a foreign investor? Okay. So property managers, they really don't have to worry about taking on foreign investors. You know, a lot of times because of not knowing the procedures, they 
they might turn away foreign investors. Once you get your systems in place, it's very simple. So basically, your onboarding process, find out what is the person, a country, uh, I mean, a citizen of the United States. They're not a citizen of the United States or a permanent resident of the United States, then they are technically a foreign citizen, foreign now become a foreign investor. And normally, a foreign citizen cannot get a tax ID number unless they have a, re- a requirement for it. So it's kind of like the cart before the horse. Interesting. So they're going <laughs> to gonna have, they might come in, buy a property, want to rent it out. Well, they've never filed a tax return before. So they have never had a need for a tax ID number. But now as a property manager, well, how do I handle this? How do I do the tax reporting for my foreign investor? What the IRS says is this. You can start, take them on, start collecting the rents. All the IRS wants is 30% of gross rents deposited monthly via the electronic taxpayer system. And that covers the property manager's responsibility. You take 30% of their gross rents, you send it as a monthly tax deposit, you pay their bills, and you send the, the owner the net. Now, the owner is gonna, gonna probably going to freak out saying 30% is a lot of money. Why am I even renting this place if I'm not going to get this? Right. They're assuming it's a tax. It's an actual tax. It's not a tax. It's simply a tax deposit. In other words, the IRS wants the foreign person to go ahead and file non-resident tax returns and pay tax at their normal rate, which is usually 10%. What happens is this. Now that the property manager has a management agreement with a foreign citizen, they're collecting rents. Now the foreign citizen has a basis for requesting a tax ID number from the IRS. They can work through a certified acceptance agent such as ourselves, or there's plenty of them nationwide or even in their home country that they can go to apply for a tax ID number. It usually takes the IRS these days, they're running from anywhere from eight to 16 weeks to issue a number. In the meantime, the property manager is just collecting rents, taking 30% of that, sending it in as a monthly deposit to the IRS. Eventually, when the foreign citizen gets a tax ID number, they will fill out a form called the WAECI. They'll give that to the property manager. And now that property manager has that form on file. Basically, in effect, that's a form that exempts the foreign citizen from now having to pay 30% tax deposit in advance. At that point, you can just give them all their money. Now, what about all the money that's being collected and deposited? Does the foreign citizen ever get that back? Yes. As long as they file their own non-resident tax return, they can apply for a refund on that money. So that covers the feds. Also, you have to look at your individual state. Each state might have a tax deposit requirement on just people who do not live in that state. They don't have to be foreign citizens. They could just be non-residents of the state. Again, we'll touch on California. California requires a 7% deposit on non-residents. Again, you just take 7%. And in the case of California, I believe it's quarterly that you're submitting that 7% to them as a tax deposit. Difference with California is a non-resident has to file at least a minimum of two years worth of California tax returns before they can apply for an exemption from the California tax deposit. So each state will have its own rules and laws that you'd want to look into depending on what state you live in. But that's that's the gist. Tax, as long as you're collecting the tax deposits and submitting them as a property manager, you're covered. Don't get into the bad habit of listening to a foreign owner saying, tax number, it's coming, just give me my money. Because eventually that turns into two months, five months, one year, two years, and never comes. 
Well, that's what happened with us, as you remember, right? Although we yeah. did collect the money, right? We had the money. We just weren't right. submitting it, which, you know, also caused us some problems. So I guess for us, that was the confusing part is how do we submit this money without a number for tracking, you know, by the IRS for this individual, right? right? So that's kind of where we got hung up. Now we know. Yeah, because when you, just to clarify, so when you're submitting the tax deposit, the, the IRS doesn't know exactly who it's for. They'll just assign that deposit to the property manager, EIN. So it goes into a pool for your property management company. IRS says, okay, we got $100,000 from North County Prop Group. Yeah. Who is this for? At the end of the year, there's a tax form that you would have to file that basically reconciles who that money belongs to. And that's how the IRS determines, okay, 10 owners that have pulled $100,000. Let's see who's going to file a tax return. They kind of hope that no one does file a tax return because 30% is a high tax that's way more than the 10% <laughs> right. that, the, that the owners will have to file. So it's in, it's in the best interest of the owners to actually go ahead and get compliant. Super helpful. I know that particular aspect is very, very common, especially here in California and is always confusing. Hey, many of us have in this business contractors that work with us, right? Providing various services such as maintenance vendors. We have plumbers, right. you know, all these kind of different types of people, electricians, uh, maintenance providers. We also have, in most cases, consultants who do things like marketing, legal, tax, right? Accounting guidance. Right. And we're required to report the rental income earned by our clients, all these kind of things. So the IRS now has two types of 1099 forms. I thought it might be helpful just to clarify, okay, what is reporting for non-employee income on the 1099 miscellaneous? And what now is to be reported on, I think it's called the 1099 NEC. Okay. Yeah, the IRS has a way of just making things more complicated. That's what they are. Right. <laughs> that, that, is a, that is the whole function. Um, the 1099 miscellaneous will now just go for your owner's rents. So all rental income is now reported on the 1099. Everyone else is the 1099 NEC, non-employee compensation. So all your vendors will get a 1099 NEC. All your owners will get a 1099 miscellaneous. Yeah, that's super easy. So people that we've paid for services, that's the NEC for people where we've collected rents and we're just demonstrating, okay, this is the income that we've distributed to you. That would be the 1099 miscellaneous. Exactly. One of the most common questions I get from our real estate investor clients is about, I call it the two-year rule, right? They come, oh, we got this two-year rule we have to comply with. And that's for claiming the tax exemption on capital gains if they were to sell the property. And so I'm wondering if you can explain that requirement, how it works. And of course, you know, the potential tax savings, if you can be in compliance with that. Okay. So let's assume you purchase your primary residence. As long as you live in your primary residence for a minimum of two years, and then let's say you sell it and you make a hundred thousand dollars, which in this market is easy to, to really see, right? Yeah. If you've lived in your primary residence for over two years, you get a $250,000 exemption. So in other words, the first $250,000 of capital gain on your primary residence is tax-free. If you're married, then it's double because it's you and your spouse. So the first $500,000 of capital gain would be tax-free on your primary residence. What happens is sometimes you'll take your primary residence and turn it into a, a rental property. Right? So can you still take advantage of that capital gain exemption? Yes. The thing is, it's called the two of five year rule. So basically, you look at the exact date you sell your, your property and you look back five years to the day. Don't go past it because the IRS is sticklers for time. So, five years to the day, if you've lived in that property 
for at least two of those five years. The most re like doesn't have to be the most recent two years. It could be anywhere in that five years before you are selling. Right. And it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, for example, it doesn't have to be 2020, 2021. It could be 2017. I lived there for a year. 2020, I lived for the for a year. Oh, I see. So it doesn't have to be sequential. Sequential. There you the go. Word. That's yeah, the word. There I'm you going. go. Yeah. Right? As long as it's just, if I've lived in that property for two of the past five years from the date of sale, and I've not used that cap that capital gain exclusion, I can now use that exclusion to to you know shield if I'm single, two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of capital gain. And if I'm married, 500000 of capital gains. So that's what your investors are looking at. Obviously, it's really practical, right? But again, you must look at the sale date and stick to that timeline. Don't go a day beyond uh, that five-year mark mm-hmm. because the IRS, the sticklers on that. Then the clock resets. And then I get another primary property. And if I live in that for another two years, then I can take advantage of that again you know, in two years. So it's not one and done. It resets after you use it. Sure. We have a lot of clients, and this is not just our clients, but a lot of people are reaching a certain age, maybe it's retirement, and they're deciding to leave California. Right. We're all hearing about this, this expensive place to live. So we have a lot of clients who want to try living someplace else, Hawaii, Idaho, uh, you know, the, all these Midwest states are you know now flooded with people moving from California. So they come to us, they say, okay, we'd like to rent our property. They've been living in it, and we're going to go try this. We think we're going to like it, and if we decide to stay, then we may want to sell. So I guess what you're saying, it's important then to make that decision within about three years, right? Because yeah, exactly. three plus the two you've lived there would equal five and then plan with enough time to make sure your home gets sold under that five-year bar. Exactly. So they bought the house in 2000, to use your previous example that you were saying, and they lived there for two years and now it's 2021. Those two years don't count. Exactly. All right. Let's talk 1031 exchange. This is another thing that comes to me quite frequently from our clients. Common question, right? They don't really know how to work. I know this is complicated, right? And it might be worthy of its own individual episode, but as a high level explanation, how does the concept work and who can take advantage of it for tax deferment and savings? Okay. So again, it's a complex subject, but high level, anyone who has investment property can take advantage of this. So it can't be your primary residence. This must be investment property specifically. So let's assume I have an investment property that I'm selling now, and I am going to have a capital gain of about $200,000. I'm going to have a hefty tax bill on that. Well, I can do what's called a 1031 exchange. What does that mean? That means the IRS says, go find a property that's of equal or greater value, purchase it, and we'll basically defer the tax that's due on the what you're selling now until you sell this replacement property. There's a couple of caveats on that. The IRS says, okay, you have to identify your replacement property within 45 days after you sell the property you're giving up. Mm-hmm. And you have to close on that property within 180 days. So they give you a very tight window. And again, they're particulars for those timelines. In this market, it could be hard to find a property that fits your bill. Because they're saying that within that 45-day window, they want you to identify at least three properties that you're going to replace when you're selling. Yeah, by the time you identify them and submit them, they're already sold, you know, so. Exactly. So that's the hard part, right? Because so you have to identify and close on that within 180 days. So that's what makes it hard. And also, you can never come in contact with the money. So in other words, you have to use an exchange agent facilitator. They'll take title. They'll close. The money will go to the, the exchange agent. And then when you find your replacement property the exchange agent will use the funds to purchase that property. So you can never come in contact 
personally with the money. If you come in contact personally with the money, then the exchange is, is done and you can't take advantage of it. What's nice again with the deferrals is you can upgrade into a property, maybe in a different location you want. Maybe you want to get into a higher level property you can upgrade into. You can split your risk because you can take the property that you're selling and buy two or three properties, as long as it's the amount of those two or three properties that you're replacing is equal or greater value to the one you're giving up. So there's a lot of strategic motives to also do it. And what's nice too, is it's a, a way to build wealth over time, because again, instead of paying you know, $50,000, $60,000 in taxes right now, it's deferred, mm-hmm. right? So you're able to upgrade to an appreciating asset. And what a lot of people do with the tax laws as they are currently is they keep deferring. They'll keep using it a like kind of exchange, keep deferring, keep deferring until they pass away and they pass it on to their children. And guess what? With the tax laws right now, the basis starts at the day you inherit it. So in effect, mm-hmm. all that deferral that you've been accumulating is now wiped clean. Your children or whoever's inheriting the property doesn't have to pay any of that tax. Wow! So that's how people build wealth right now. They're trying to close that loophole. I don't know if they're going to be able to do it. That's one of the might be slipping into that new package that's going through. But mm-hmm. as it stands now, it's it's legal. And uh, that's how people really build wealth in this country is with uh, appreciating assets like that. Wow. You mentioned it's only for rental properties. Is that true of the property that's being sold as well or just the properties that are being purchased? Because I get this question a lot like, hey, we'd like to leave California. We'd like to sell our house. And then that's our primary residence. And we're going to downsize. We have the money to do that. We're going to use the proceeds from our property sell here in California and buy some other rental properties. Does that qualify or does the property being sold also have to be considered a rental? Right. The property being sold has to be considered a rental. So it cannot, the property being being sold has to be an investment property. The property being purchased has to be an investment property. So to kind of get around that again, if the person's interested in doing a like kind of exchange, maybe they rent the property for a year before the, you know, it was the primary. Now they rent it. And that becomes an investment property, and then they can do an exchange. Gotcha. Okay. And and the time period for renting it would be just a year? I would suggest always, there's nothing written, but it has to be a bona fide rental. Hey, for the real estate investors that are listening out there, there's a long list of tax deductible expenses that one incurs when they're renting a place or when they're a landlord, including property management fees they might be paying. And those essentially can be subtracted from rental income, which helps reduce tax liability. Just to name a few, right? A mortgage interest, property insurance, HOA, the management fees, depreciation, all these kind of things. How does this all get netted out? I mean, this may be simple and straightforward to you, but I think it's a good topic to cover here as we close in on wrapping up the episode. How does that all get netted out? And how can we help our clients as property managers consolidate that into reporting some of these items that appear on our property management statements to our investor clients? It's quite simple. So you take your gross income and then any expense associated with that investment rental property is tax deductible. So basically every dime you put into that property, no matter what your what the expense is, is allowed to be deducted. So if I make 20000 for the year, and I have 15000 of expenses, then I don't have to pay $5,000. I only have $5,000 of taxable income. Now, as a property manager with um, the, PN, the cash flow statements that you provide to your owners, you can help them by segregating like major asset purchases. For example, their air conditioner goes out. That's a major purchase. Mm-hmm. Segregate that out uh, on the cash flow, you know, a new roof, anything that's basically a capital improvement 
segregate that out because capital improvements are, have a different tax treatment than just your regular ordinary expenses. So it saves the owner having lots of questions from their tax preparers and then them coming back to you perhaps saying, okay, what is this $5,000 that's lumped into you know repairs? A roof? Okay. Well, on the tax return, we can't take the 5000 as one hit. We have to spread that over 27 years. From a practical standpoint, everything on that, that cash flow statement is an expense. It's deductible. But you might want to just have a section that's called capital improvements for you know anything that is a capital improvement. Is there a dollar value? If you send a plumber and he, he replaces the toilet, I mean, that would be not a capital improvement, right? The $250 to put in a new toilet. Right. I generally say anything above $2,500. For example, I have a lot of clients that have properties in Florida. Their houses were obliterated by the hurricanes. Well, now those are not capital improvements. Those are really repairs because I got to get them back to you know operating. If it's just things that are you know add more than one year of value to the life of the property, again, like a new roof, a new HVAC, you know. Yeah, but if you have a flood in your kitchen and you have to do remediation, and as a result, your whole kitchen gets ripped out and replaced, that's that is a that's a maintenance aspect, right? You're doing it because you had to. Yeah, you're repairing it back to where it was originally, so you can write that all off. Hey, Richard, this has been. A great conversation packed with some really terrific information today. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I know we have barely scratched the surface on some of these topics. So like I said earlier, uh, maybe we can come back and do another episode and do deep dives on some of these specific topics. But in general, any last words for our listeners today? And also, if someone wants to connect with you to discuss tax topics or have you do a plan for them, tax plan for them in greater detail, what's the best way to get connected? So kind of summarize today's episode, any last tips, and then how, how can people connect with you? Okay, again, be proactive, not reactive. Talk to your tax preparer or tax accountant now so that you can plan to save as much money on taxes in the future. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us, email me direct, richard at heartassociate.com. No S. So it's richard at heartassociate.com. Or you can give us a call at 702-589-4687. Uh, we're happy to answer your questions. No charge for a consult fee. The IRS says take every deduction that's legal. Why not do it? Keep more money in your pocket <laughs> as opposed to Uncle Sam's. Perfect. Hey, thanks so much, Richard. It's been a great episode. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Bob. As we wrap up today, I'd like to make another quick plug to our listeners to please click on the subscribe button. Give us a like and also please pay it forward with a positive review to help encourage more great guests like Richard, to come on our show. That concludes today's episode. Thank you so much for joining the Property Management Brainstorm Show. Until next time, we will be working hard in the field to exceed the expectations of our clients, build their trust and confidence, maximize the value of their real estate assets. Our objective, as always, is to be the trusted advisor to protect rental property investments, achieve real estate financial goals for our clients, and free them of the time involved in being a landlord. And we will catch you next time.